Hi, everyone. This is America Adapts, the climate change podcast. Because you owe it to the country. It gives you a living, and it's a case of giving back, I think. Hey, Adapters. Welcome back to a truly exciting episode of America Adapts. We are going down under. As you adapters can tell, I'm a big fan of Australia. I used to live there, and any chance I get to highlight what they are doing, I will. First off, I want to thank QMDC, the Queensland Murray Darling Committee, and NRM Queensland for generously sponsoring this episode. Special thanks to Jeff Penton and Andrew Drysdale. I need to give a little context to this episode. This is a big episode, but Queensland is big. It's 2.5 times the size of Texas with just a fraction of the population. And you'll see from some of my guests, Queensland was my home for three and a half years in the mid-aughts. So this is a very special return for me, literally to my favorite place in the world. For my longtime listeners, I did an episode on the Australian state of Victoria earlier this year when I went there for a presentation. As part of that trip, I was able to visit Queensland to do some of these interviews. You'll see some of these guests are old friends of mine. Others are new acquaintances. My guests will do a better job than me explaining what NRM bodies are. Even though my guests represent different organizations, they are talking about the natural resource management bodies. The point of this episode is to highlight how these organizations offer a truly unique way to approach adaptation, especially in rural areas. Okay, some podcast news. I was just a guest on the awesome sustainability podcast, A Sustainable Mind. The host and I dig into how adaptation and sustainability are two different fields and how they can learn from each other. Check it out. The link is in the show notes. Okay, some quick shout outs. Thanks, Don, for reaching out. Thanks for sharing that information, Jade. Thank you, Trevor, for your suggestion. And of course, thank you, Sarah, for everything that you are doing for me. Thanks, Amelia, for your suggestions. And thanks, Mitchell, for keeping your passion alive on sea level rise. Okay, future episodes. I'm in the final stages of an episode with Sean Martin of World Wildlife Fund on how to mainstream adaptation. Hopefully, that will be a really useful tool. Okay, part two of the flooding podcast series should be out soon. Also up is Elizabeth Rush, author of Rising, her book that's getting a ton of positive press. I also have some other episodes brewing. Hopefully, I'm going to do one on Houston and the post-Harvey reconstruction. Stay tuned for those. Okay, adapters, this is the part you can't skip. America Adapts is a charitable organization that needs your support. Don't let all my podcast traveling fool you. This is a tiny operation. Every donation counts. I know you longtime listeners are always thinking about donating. Now is the time. Go to americadapts.wedid.it. That again is americadapts.wedid.it. It's as simple as that. This podcast will only continue through your support. And thank you to all my existing supporters. You guys really rock. That donate page is also in my show notes. You know, instead of giving you adaptation-themed interviews, don't make me start singing air supply songs off-key. I'll do it. Also, if you're interested in sponsoring specific podcasts or having me speak at a public or corporate event, please reach out. I share stories from the podcast and my own experiences in adaptation. And if you're thinking of starting your own podcast, I'm doing some podcasting consulting. You can contact me via the website, americadapts.org. Okay, be on the lookout for some transition sounds in this episode. Those are recordings I made in Southeast Queensland rainforest. That loud sound is a cockatoo flying overhead. Okay, 
Let's take a journey to Queensland, the most awesome place in the world. Hey adapters, we are here in the West End of Brisbane, Australia, and I am with my old boss from the Regional Groups Collective, which that's not what they're called anymore, but uh, I'm thrilled to be here, and I am with... Andrew Drysdale, and uh, Doug, it's, it's, it's great to have you here. We haven't adapted that well yet to, uh, to give you a home here, but we're working towards it. Yeah, you help me get a visa, okay? <laughs> well, some things are just beyond me. But anyway, I can try. I, I work for a not-for-profit organisation called um, Queensland Natural Resource Management Regions, NRMRQ, Regions Queensland, there you go, which represents 14 organisations that cover Queensland and, and works with communities to try and manage and their natural resource management better. You know, we're all about in sustainably using or enhancing or even protecting our, our natural resources. So, yeah, it's a challenge. All right, we've got some disco music on in the background, but that's okay. <laughs> we're going to work with this. So what are some of the topics that you cover as NRM bodies? And I know, just so my listeners know, I used to work with these things, and there's these NRM plans, but they basically cover all sorts of issues, you know, conservation, agriculture, but what are some of the other topics? Well, it's, you know, the good old triple bottom line, Doug, of trying to to get economic, social and environmental outcomes and maybe the fourth cultural outcomes for our communities. That's that's our bread and butter. We realise that governments governments will never be able to fund the, the change in terms of managing our natural resources Unless the, unless the land managers out there in the communities identify the, the, the need for change and accept the need for change and accept the options, then no amount of government dollars will, will get, get the change that we require towards managing our natural resources. So our job is simply about working with, with land managers, enabling them to work through that whole good old Change 101 process and it's challenging for a number of reasons. Working with communities is always challenging, but it's uh, it's pretty rewarding. And you know, working in the constraints of budgets, that's that's challenging. And constraints of especially when most of the budgets come from government. So, but we're still here after near 20 years, and uh, I think we'll be here for a lot longer. And of course, Australia, the home of land care, that's that's the on ground stuff, and that, that's the that's what delivers. The major delivery arm of, of what we do. So when I was here about a dozen years ago, we just started to dabble in climate change. I remember we hosted that Climate Change and Agricultural Summit. I don't know if you remember that. Uh, Nigel from QCC, I did that with him. How would you say the issue of climate change has evolved since I was here in Australia over a dozen years ago? I mean, it sometimes it hasn't gotten any easier for you. Like, it, like in the States, it's still controversial. Well, I suppose... In the, in the early parts when you were here, Doug, it, it was a bit of a, a novelty, if that was the word. You know, this new thing coming over the rise. We also had peak oil back then. It's gone quiet. I don't know where peak oil's gone. No doubt it's still there, but the issue. Then we worked through periods where we had governments who actually banned the use of the word climate change in their policy. 
and that's hard. That's really hard. I think it's it's it's, it's bloody irresponsible. And then we've come through the other side, but uh, people they're, they're not blind. Uh, what what I find fascinating, but also very bloody scary, is that we what has been predicted to happen is happening between our in front of our very own eyes, but only happening quicker. We've seen. You know, the incidents of of Category 5 cyclones in Queensland uh, are way higher than they've ever been before. You know, we're seeing some severe rainfall events and severe droughts. In in a period of a decade, this this whole new trend is is happening and it's rolling out in front of our eyes. So I think people are starting to, in, in Australia or in the part of Australia that I live, they're starting to move from the denial stage to a stage of, well, yep, maybe they don't accept it's as bad as what's predicted, but they do accept that there's things happening that, that aren't normal, in inverted commas. It's, yeah, it's that, that part of it, I think, is, is getting easier for us, getting people to a, an industry and different sectors within industries all accepting that they have some role to play in adaptation and mitigation. I'll probably give more context to this, but in Queensland, there's so many different ecosystems. And as the peak body group for these NRM bodies and that represent the whole state, you have the Great Barrier Reef, which is a resource for the rest of the world, as you guys probably necessarily appreciate. It's just something we think about, we hear about all the time. We want you to take care of it. And when you have, I remember back in the day, the, NR, the regional groups collective board meetings, it's like putting a dozen mud crabs in a bucket together and it's like try to accomplish something. So how does that unfold when you think about some of the reef issues that you probably have to hear about all the time, and then you have some of the outback issues? How, being at the center of that, does that unfold, especially in the context of climate change? Do people collaborate well, or is it just, again, something that they kind of butt heads about? Uh, they do definitely collaborating well. There's there's no doubt about that. There's still an element of headbutting. And interestingly, I think Doug, the the headbutting isn't so much at a at a government level, and I don't think it's at a you know environmentalist headbutting with farmers or tourism industry. The headbutting seems to be more around the scientific fraternity arguing about what's the solution or what do we need to do or how much is a, you know is this just a natural or how much is it climate change and that we had a you know the other big issue in australia is the murray darling basin which is a, a really big river system and not, not as big as the missouri river system but it's still one of the big ones in the world and when they realized that the health of that system was really bad the scientists basically locked themselves up in the room they said, we'll go back, we'll talk it through and agree on what the problem is, the, the, the um, severity of the problem, and, and what are some of the solutions and where we need to go. They sort of worked all through that. I don't see that with the reef, sadly. And I suppose from a climate adaptation perspective, I, I dare say some of that would apply there too. But what the reef is doing for us in Australia is it is getting a lot of world attention and it's a it's a huge contributor to to our economic our, our bottom line our economic bottom line our, our wealth but it is 
it's almost like a vacuum drawing all the air into a single area and a single issue and the other areas outside the reef are, are suffering you know in terms of trying to get attention to that but yeah i think landholders out there in throughout australia and i call you know farmers graziers pastoralists uh, we call we call them ranchers back in back in america I don't know how much they're still saying that climate change is accepting that climate change is is induced by humans or it's speeding up or whatever else, but they definitely have accepted that there's something happening. And I mean, we live in one of the most variable climates in the world in Australia. And talk about adaptation. Our farmers over a 200-year period have adapted really well to, to you know, managing the highs and lows of climate variability. What we're seeing here now is the highs and lows are becoming closer and closer together. But I already see them adapting to it. I've got a, a good mate who has a property seven, eight hundred kilometres west of Brisbane, and he four or five years ago made the call that he was going to invest significantly into that property because he's expecting less rainfall, more intense rainfall and therefore what falls he wants to keep in his property and he he was ripping up the soil so that he can get better infiltration and doing things that wasn't considered to be one economical for that economic for that country or to a standard practice but he was making his decision based on a, a more variable climate and less rainfall and more intense rainfall so there's many many examples of that across across our country i found an a man, I guess it's a manifesto that's on your website. Um, it was written September of last year, so not too long ago, an uncertain future. And so I, I don't know if you have looked at that recently, but it's really quite a, a bold statement. And you talk about the controversy around climate change, and but you bring up concepts like the precautionary principle. The NRM bodies have a responsibility to think like this. But I was actually quite impressed because it, I think it acknowledges the controversy, but it's just like, we've got to do something here. And so nothing's changed it's still an uncertain future it's probably more applicable to funding now than climate change but that's that's uh we won't talk about that we we produced a document called living landscapes local livelihoods where we our, our state of queensland hasn't got an nrm plan probably the only state in australia that doesn't so we we produced that which talks about the primary assets we want to maintain and then some of the things that need to happen at ten, in the 10-year outcomes. Any final thoughts on how you see NRM bodies leading on the issue of adaptation and climate change? You've sort of touched upon how they can, but any sort of final thought? Let's say there's some staff members out there, these NRM bodies, that you are talking to, sort of saying, you know, this is this huge issue. This is something that you're going to continue to focus on, you want to emphasize? Oh, look, Doug, we will just continue doing what we believe and what we have been doing for the last 15 years, and that is to continue to work with land managers and communities to enable them, enable, enable, enable them to recognise the problem and also to provide them with some solutions or facilitate them coming up with the solutions. We, we will just continue to do that. We've sort of done a 360 loop in some cases. You talk about the reef, where 
these NRM plans that were developed in, in the 14 regions with communities in giving them ownership of identifying what the priorities were and what the targets and the, and, and the solutions were. And the governments funded that. We then moved to a, to a very prescriptive funding program where the Australian government, or state and Commonwealth governments said, we will only fund that activity in that area because that's what we think is the priority. And it disempowered our communities for virtue. And now we've got back to where we look at the reef and we have programs where they're now sitting down with farmers and saying, so if we want to reduce nutrient runoff from the reef, what do you think we need to do? What do you think you need to do? And so it's empowering those groups again. And it's the same about climate change. Nutrients running into the reef are about farming practices, but it's also about more intense rainfall events, more Category 5 cyclones, obviously mean that there's more runoff hitting the reef, so it's all, it's all tied in together. I suppose we need to adapt to the old method where you used to have on-farm tours or you know, community groups or coming together and farm farm meetings and all of that, which is still a great way to disseminate information. But, you know, this day and age, a young farmer is more likely to go to a computer than to go to a field, field day. Uh, so we've got to adapt to how we engage with these land managers, these communities, and I suppose that's our challenge, but uh, we're still only enablers. All right, last two questions. What's your favourite landscape in Queensland? Well, my favourite landscape in Queensland, my, we celebrated 100 years of ownership of our property in Western Queensland. And in 1915, my grandfather went to take up the property and he was building a house for his then fiancée and he carved in this tree her initials and the date and I go back to that tree whenever I go back to my home property and I stand there and I look down over the over the paddock and I'd say that'd be my favorite landscape because it's a really special place for me so you know I'm just hoping in a hundred years time it'll still be there and the tree hasn't died because it hasn't bloody rained I was going to say the Great Barrier Reef but that's a much better story I love it okay final question and this might vex you a little bit since I left, I've been using this expression over and over again because it's something you've said to me, and I brought it up with Aussies, and they have never heard of it. And you told me we're having coffee somewhere. You're just like something like, Doug, they're going to ride you like a pack of goannas. What the hell does that mean? Uh, it means that they're going to be on your back and they're not going to let go. So if you can imagine having a, a, a you know, 20 two metre long lizards crawling over your back that's pretty hard riding so that's what that means so it just means that uh, they're, they're not going to give up they're not going to let up they're going to just ride you and ride you they're going to ride you like a pack of goannas you're Rowan Foley you're the general manager with the Aboriginal Carbon Fund and so what is that what is the fund we're a little not-for-profit, uh, specialising in working with traditional owners, First Nations people in the carbon industry uh, in Australia. So where are you based out of? 
I'm based in Alice Springs in the Northern Territory, which is a uh, fairly remote uh, location in Australia. Okay, so a lot of my listeners are, are in North America, and I think it would just be really kind of nice. Can you describe some of the landscapes that, that you're working in and, and some of the indigenous folks? What, what kind of landscapes in Australia are, are they working on as, as part of the Carbon Fund work? We primarily work in very remote locations in the uh, Cape York, the top of Queensland, top end, the, the Northern Territory, and the Kimberley in Australia, so across northern uh, very remote locations with uh, primarily traditional owners, people who do not speak English as a first language, with cultural uh, practices. So uh, even though you're based out of Alice Springs for your work, you, you, do you, I, I'm assuming you have to travel to a lot of these remote locations yourself. Yeah, that's right. I've got an office based in Cairns. I've got staff in Cairns. And it's about joining up the, the land, the, the remote locations in the north. We've also got an office in Sydney with the corporate buyers and, and um you know, clients in the South. So when you join North and South, you have a, a viable economy. As I mentioned earlier, in the United States, a, a lot of the, the tribal interests are based mainly in the West. There are a few that are in East United States, but how many distinct tribes are there in Australia, if, if you kind of explain it that way? How, how, what's the population and then sort of like how many kind of different groups? There's 200 groups in Australia or tribal groups, you might say, and there are over 30 carbon projects on Indigenous lands, and the First Nations are the probably the, the main landholding group, apart from uh, pastoralists or across northern Australia. They, the, the First Nations hold significant land interests in, in those three remote lo- locations. Okay, what I thought was very interesting in some of the materials that you shared with me is this whole notion of the ethical trade of carbon. So what does that mean, especially uh, dealing with how the Aboriginal people are, are working within the fund? It means creating carbon economy that fit the cultural and social uh, priorities of the First Nations people. So by having jobs working as rangers and by supporting the, the looking after the maintenance of sacred sites, important cultural sites, and also um, the tr- traditional ecological next generation next. Uh, these are the sort of the social, cultural, and environmental values of the project are our main drivers, not money. Okay, so you try to recruit the local people to to be part of this. Even they're they're managing the land, and as part of the funding, is as you manage the landscape to get those carbon credits. When you're actually doing this sort of outreach, how are you finding it that you know here is a chance for you to earn some income as part of this whole carbon market? I mean, what's that process like? Is it's a chance probably to bring some? I know you said it's not for the money, but it is a chance, I guess, to earn a bit of income in some remote places. Uh, first of all, we are invited by the landowners to come and work with them. So we don't recruit anyone. People are very, you know, this is the work that they're interested in. It's an industry. Unfortunately, there's not a lot known. People are very good on the ground. Fire management is the savannah burning is the main technique. But once you start to talk about the carbon industry, people are a little bit, they're not very familiar with it and carbon markets. And therefore, they'll ask, they'll invite us in and uh, because they want to have a, a good income for the community. And they'll say, Rowan, can you come and help us? And um, like, yeah, I'll say, yeah, that's what we're here for. So 
uh, you know, you need to be invited in the first place. I should have remembered that even from my time in Australia, the notion of being invited. Yes, that's it. It's a different sort of way. And, you know, you have to be, I guess, very sensitive to, to the, those traditions. And what do you hope to accomplish with the program? You have the existing program, but what's the goal? Is it just, is it more of the landscape or more folks that you're hoping that will invite you to come in and maybe, I guess, explain this opportunity? The goal is to create carbon economies on Aboriginal land. So at the moment, the main economies are based around mining, tourism, cattle, and now we have a new economy that is uh, emerging around carbon. And we believe that the, the carbon economy is a much better fit uh, socially uh, in the communities, culturally for the traditional owners, and environmentally for the management of the lands. So, you know, we have other competing economies, uh, mining, tourism, cattle, uh, but we believe the carbon economy is, 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 a, is a very good economy and people tend to, uh, you know, favour that type of work. And you'd mentioned, I think, that there's up, there's over 200 tribes. And so how many have actually invited you to come in? Uh, probably about half a dozen at this point in time. There's about 30 carbon projects on Aboriginal lands across northern Australia. And, you know, it's um, so we're working with about half a dozen groups. And we, we were put in touch by Andrew Dysdale from NRM in Queensland. And so what's the relationship? Queensland, and that's the focus of this podcast, is made up, I think, of 14 or 15 of these regional bodies. Are, are you working directly with them? Is, that, is there sort of overlap in what they're doing and with the work that you're doing? Uh, we're trying to. So we've just developed the, the new system for the measurement of social, cultural, and environmental values. So people often talk about it. And, and they say, oh, it's a nice story. And we can actually, and we go, no, it's not a nice story. It's actually true. And we can prove it's true. And, you know, we're, I'm going to Scotland next uh, month to give our paper about the verification of social, cultural, and environmental values. And we're hoping to work with the NRM groups in Queensland as well. So we have a, it's a peer to peer system. So ranger to ranger, farmer to farmer. Uh, so we're hoping to broaden the scope of it. But uh, it's early days. We're hoping to work with the NRM groups. Uh, I was on the I was on the board of the Northern Territory NRM for six years, so I'm quite familiar with the, the bodies. Right. But in Queensland, uh, where th- this work is emerging. Okay, and so you'd mentioned Scotland, and, and you're going to visit there. And so ha- I should know this, but ha- has there been any outreach to you from First Nations in like the United States or Canada? Uh, taking interest in what you're doing over there yes we have been to canada we have been invited there by the bc first nations went there last year and i've been invited to go to ontario this year and at our big carbon conference the carbon market institute conference we invited maori uh people first nations from new zealand to come over and uh they're very very interested in our work in canada they're looking at replicating our company and i know that because of I've read the report they submitted to government, which is 90% of the work that we're doing, uh, which is, you know, which is fabulous. But, yeah, so the peer-to-peer work, so First Nations to First Nations, Maori to Maori, Ranger to Ranger in Australia. People are very, very interested in this. We're going to Scotland. I'm hoping the work will be picked up in South America and in Africa. So one of our guiding lights is Paulo Freire, uh, Pedagogy of the Oppressed. You know, we have a very, you know, community-based style. It's, it's backed by rigorous science, but it's a very different approach that First Nations people are very hungry for. 
Well, I hope at some point there's some interest from the United States in what you're doing. I, I, I've just been catching up on what it is, but I'm very impressed. And so I do hope there's some tribal interest in the U.S. If they're not doing it already, w- would want to reach out and maybe even learn from this podcast and what you're up to. Yes, we've, we are very happy to collaborate with people. Okay, just you know, a, a couple more questions here, but this is more, I guess, on a personal note. And I, I was reading about you, and so you, you have sort of a, a history with Fraser Island, right? Yeah, I come from the uh, Butchula people, uh, traditional lands of Fraser Island. Our native title claim took 18 years, uh, but we finally got there. But yeah, I was a ranger on the island. I sort of grew up over there a lot throughout my childhood. Yeah. Well, yeah, I just I thought it was an interesting. I never got a chance to go to Fraser Island when I lived in Australia. It's it's massive island, and so I guess you got to spend significant time there each year with family, just kind of so living on the island. Yeah, for one one month of every year uh, throughout for the first you know eighteen years of my life, we'd go camping. So my my mother would cook over a fire. We'd go fishing every day, and just you know just lived on the island. You know, I did that. You know, you know we did that for one month every year. We'd just go camp on the island, and yeah, so that's that's how I was that's how I was raised. Yep. Well, you know, I, <laughs> in the United States, we don't take. And when I was in Australia, people would take very you know long breaks because it was well deserved, and it's it's a good way to have to do things, and so. Two, three, four weeks, and, and kind of living in a place or visiting a place that it's great. You really kind of get to appreciate it, and of course, that's your ancestral homeland. So, uh, I hope to get there someday. But is there any sort of final insight you want to share before we wrap this up? If, if people want to learn more about what you're doing there at the Aboriginal Carbon Fund, First Nations have a wonderful future of our lands, and we can contribute uh, significantly to uh, you know the, to the world. Uh, we just need people to recognize the contribution that First Nations people are making. All right. Thank you so much. Yeah, no worries, mate. That's, that's fine. If you can look, just put me in contact with anyone over there, First Nations people, just, just reach out and, you know, like we're, we're very collaborative. So we, we, we want to, you know, let people know what we're doing and I want to know what they're doing. So. I will. I got a few people in mind. I, I, I'll, uh, connect you with. Again, thanks for making the time to do this. Yeah, no worries, Doug. Hey Adapters, I am back as part of this NRM Queensland episode and I am with Samantha Morris. Samantha, how's it going? G'day from Australia. Samantha, we know each other, but could you first say you you have sort of a an odd history and sort of uh, work status, but could you just say where you work? I'll kind of give a little bit more background and why I'm interviewing you, but just want to give the listeners a sort of background. Even blank, just share what, what, what you do right now. So I am a a writer, editor, and publisher in my spare time, and I uh, have created a little alternative music magazine on the Gold Coast, which is Australia's sixth city. But for my real job, I have spent more than the last 20 years consulting to a range of conservation and natural resource management groups across Australia, and those groups situated anywhere between the biggest cities and the smallest towns you could imagine. So most of your work has been in Queensland, though. Most of my work has been in Queensland, but uh, as a consultant, you know, you end up spreading yourself around a little bit. And a lot of my work has been with the bodies that represent groups of these groups, so peak body kind of uh, things, and they're situated in capital cities as well as nationally. Okay, 
I just want to also let my listeners know, I know, Sam, we are friends that actually go way back from my time in Australia, and I do want to acknowledge that. I sat right next to Samantha in one of the offices <laughs> there, and so we have a history, and so it's kind of really cool that we've come full circle that I'm recording a podcast with you. Very exciting. Uh, I'm glad that you've overcome some of those early language barriers, Doug. <laughs> people, think that, people think Americans and Australians speak the same English, but I'm sure you could give lots of examples of how that is absolutely not the case. All right. I am here talking about adaptation and the NRM regional bodies in Queensland. And I'm just, could you give maybe what you think? You you do a lot of communication with, with these regional bodies, and I know you do all sorts of training workshops, but what's your sense of, of the issue of adaptation with the, the NRM bodies? So I guess looking at climate change a little more broadly than just adaptation, this has been a really challenging space, not just for the regional NRM bodies, but for lots of government-funded groups in Australia. It's challenging because we have a three-year political cycle at the state and federal level, and so a lot of these groups who are funded by governments have reliance on their money and also have a, a, an obligation to implement and talk about government policy in certain ways. So that's been a pretty big challenge for natural resource management groups across the board. The other issue they have is that they're not really delivering action on the ground. So these groups are developing strategies and plans for other people to implement. And that is also a challenge because it's great to have uh, big ideas about how you can manage the landscape, but it's a completely different game when it comes to making those projects work on the ground. And, and I want people, I've talked a bit about this with Andrew, but the sense of what an NRM regional body really is, that it, it represents all these different sectors, you know, Aboriginal interests, agricultural interests, conservation interests, and it has to kind of juggle those sometimes competing priorities. I mean, what's your sense of that model? So as and Andrew has probably given you this background, um, but the regional bodies came about because governments were looking for a strategic way to manage the landscape. So for a long time, they had been investing in small, hands-on environmental and, and rural conservation groups. So they would be fixing fences, um, installing watering points for cattle, planting trees, um, going onto individual farms or properties and giving people advice. And then the government decided, look, if we're going to spend this much money on managing the landscape, we should do it more strategically. So we need to have bodies located regionally, so 56 around Australia, that can bring all of the various interest groups together and come up with a plan for how we should manage soil, water, vegetation and climate. And that is a wonderful idea in theory, but the groups that you're bringing together or that they are bringing together include mining companies and conservation groups. Um, they include extraction companies like coal seam gas or underground coal gasification companies. They include graziers and pastoralists as well as green groups. So there is the whole spectrum. And then you have economic development and tourism, lots of interest groups that are trying to have a say about how to manage the natural resources. And, of course, with any cross-section of society, not all of those groups have actually got the same end goal in mind. You can't have 
a mining company and a conservation group working collaboratively on how to best manage the landscape. That That is a process in, in very small rural towns that is fraught. Well, I actually didn't go into that much detail with Andrew. And so maybe you could just give a really brief explanation. So you'd mentioned these NRM plans. And so these are sort of the, the foundation document that each of these regional bodies that guides what they do. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. literally, how did how did those plans get written? So it was it a, just by workshop and all these different interests came together mm. and then it was who, who signs off on it? So usually the minister, the federal uh, environment or, or primary industries minister will have the final kind of say on the natural resource management plan. But all of those interest groups contribute through workshops, through consultations, surveys, one-on-one meetings, focus groups, all of the usual tactics that organisations would use to get people's opinions on things. And I guess this is where some of the challenges with climate change and climate adaptation come in is that throughout Australia there are still whole communities, whole geographical regions that struggle with climate change being an issue for them, even though they're they're dealing with their 22nd year of drought, consecutive year of drought. So that's where um, these regional groups face a bit of a challenge is that their boards might actually have people who are climate deniers, and that makes coming up with practical tools for adaptation very difficult. Well, my own experience, I, I worked in the regional body, peak body group, and so it was always a curious thing when the boards would come together. And as you say, different interests were represented on those boards. You might have a conservation interest and you might have, uh, you know, agricultural interest. And it wasn't always pretty, but at the same time, I felt that there was probably no better interface for these kind of different groups to come together and actually try to talk. They wouldn't necessarily always agree, but I'm just, I'm trying to think, if the government was hosting, it wouldn't necessarily go as well as maybe a, potentially an NRM board meeting. And I, I don't know if you agree with that, but it, there's never going to be sort of a perfect platform for all these different voices to come together. And I think the NRM approach is trying to do that. It's probably the best option for doing that that we have because there to to get people in small rural communities to firstly understand climate science and secondly to begin to take action individual action and then finally to come together as a community and look at ad- adaptation or, or other tactics for dealing with climate change that is a really difficult process and you can't do it if you're based in a capital city that might be 700 miles away from where this town or, or farming community is. So the benefit of this model has been that it has put people, it has put scientists, it has put um, agricultural practitioners and conservationists into these communities that most need support for climate change more broadly but adaptation more specifically. So it has been a really long process. It, it has been, you know, 12 or 13 years since these regional bodies first formed and the probably the biggest outcome of the whole process has been relationship building. They have become a hub for people with competing interests to at least start the conversation. You know, one more point related to this sort of the weird, diverse nature of these NRM boards. I remember I was attending a meeting with the executive committee, driving them around, and I had a, a retired Air Force colonel from an urban area in the car, a former greenie, and now a mayor, 
and then a roo harvester, which is a kangaroo hunter, and a cattle rancher. And you, I'm pretty sure you know who all those people were. Mm. And it was just the oddest <laughs> pairing of people. <laughs> and I don't think you would typically would get those sort of diverse interests together, all kind of trying to work for natural resource management outcomes. And so I, for me as a, a foreigner in the thick of that, it, it was a very curious thing. So one of the things that all of those people have in common, and apart from the fact that they're all men and um, right, right, exactly. there definitely needs, needs to be more women in positions of leadership when it comes to this kind of work, but um, one of the things all of those people have in common is that they live and work in remote and, and very regional parts of Australia and Queensland more specifically. So they live basically as far north and as far west as you can go. And these are, like some states in America, these are towns which are a really long way from cities and, it, and it's hard to get there. So, um, you know, you're either getting in the car and driving for seven or eight hours or you're driving for two or three hours to then sit in a plane for an hour. So... The thing that they have in common is that they're all running businesses or representing people that live in these towns. And even though we talk about uh, or I've talked about mining mining interests and conservation interests and graziers all have it coming to the table with different goals in mind, the one thing they do share is a desire to have these regional towns be sustainable and to keep young people there for the long term. And, again, on the one hand, that makes the – climate change conversation difficult but on the other hand it's a great catalyst for ad- talking about adaptation because um, adaptation is a, a practical response to the challenge of climate change and then even on that notion of these really remote communities it, you factor in the aboriginal interests that in some ways are even more remote and in, engaging those populations Populations, it, it can be somewhat of a challenge and you have to be sensitive to, to their needs. And I, I think the NRM bodies, depending on, I think, what state you're in, you know, th- uh, they were able to, I think, engage with some of the indigenous interests and maybe better than the larger government entities could. Absolutely. And again, one of the reasons being that they are a presence on the ground in those communities. They have staff who will get in a car and drive out to a remote Aboriginal community rather than doing it by telephone or Skype from a long distance. And with the with the Indigenous engagement work, uh, it was the NRM gro- groups who were the catalyst for doing things like recording traditional knowledge and putting Indigenous rangers into places where where they needed to be a workforce on the ground. And so, again, I think most people working in the adaptation space would know and understand how important relationships are, especially when you're dealing with conservative cross-section of society. The relationship basically needs to come before anything else, relationship and trust. And the great thing about the regional NRM model is that it has put people in places where they need to be. So you did a a lot of communication work especially for the, the peak body group there in Queensland, and maybe just share some, some of the challenges of having to do communication for all these regional bodies representing the state of Queensland. But as you described earlier, that there's all these sort of maybe competing interests. You were producing <laughs> documents and you were trying to create this sort of unified vision of what 
communication might mean? I mean, that that must have been difficult for you. That is very complex and challenging role, I have to say. One of the biggest challenges is that people, again, language is very important when it comes to issues that other people consider sensitive, like climate change. And the way you talk about things like climate change has a massive impact on your ability to engage people. And so for me, you know, I personally sit on the, on the left of the spectrum, um, the liberal side of politics. And many of the people I was working for and with sit on the conservative side of politics. So again, relationships are really important, right? They, they need to trust me and know me to, to allow me to do that work. But there were issues like needing to remove reference to climate change in documents so that the document would get through. And that, that is a very difficult thing to have to do when you have a science and communication background. And it, and it became a, a personal issue around how strongly do I feel about getting the contents of this document through and does it actually matter if it refers to climate change or not? Am I comfortable doing this job? I guess a lots of people who work in uh, communication in conservation would have that challenge. And that goes back to which government happened to be in power in Australia and what their political beliefs were when it came to climate change and, and science in general. So that's a challenging thing. I guess the other issue is, and, and it was very hard sometimes to get these regions to focus on who their audience was, and this, this is a challenge that many scientists and many conservation groups have, is this notion that everybody is their audience. So they would be producing a document specifically about carbon farming, for example, and they would think that everybody would be their audience without narrowing down exactly who that message is for. And I guess that's another challenge for communication professionals working in science and conservation is helping people from different backgrounds really narrow in on messages like climate change and adaptation and who the people are that need to hear them and then finding out how you reach those people rather than broadcasting to the whole world. Well, you know, I actually on the NRM Queensland website, I was looking for climate change and I talked about this with Andrew is that, you know, there is sort of like a white paper on climate change and it really is quite bold. I, I was, I was a bit surprised and it used casual, not casual conversational language, but it, you know, it recognized the controversy, but it's just like, we're not backing away from this. And so we weren't quite clear on who the author was, but it's there as part of sort of the NRM Queensland news on climate change. So I, I was encouraged by that because like you said, there, it, especially when you're, you're getting funding from different government entities and there is transitions in what people think of climate change. That's just a reality. You have to be sensitive to that. So totally. Yeah. And one of the terms that groups, governments became quite well, very comfortable with was talking about extreme weather events or unpredictable weather or unseasonal weather, those sorts of things. And again, because one of the major drivers for natural resource management is basically sustainability, which includes financial viability of farms, uh, then talking about adaptation becomes a little bit easier because if those properties and those land managers and those farmers and graziers can't adapt to a changing climate, then they're at massive risk. Again, relating to Queensland, I don't think people appreciate I'm trying to compare it. I think you can fit two Texases in Queensland. It's that big. So uh, over here in the United States, the Great Barrier Reef is this iconic 
incredible landscape. And so even in Australia, obviously it's associated with tourism and it's an economic powerhouse. And for NRM in Queensland, let's say there's cotton growing in Western Queensland and then trying to get all these sort of competing interests. And then you've got that 8,000 pound gorilla of the Great Barrier Reef that must just take up all the oxygen when it comes to sort of the the focus of where people want to direct conservation mm. and, you know, communication and marketing. Well, I guess um, the Great Barrier Reef has has probably been a wonderful asset to climate campaigners and advocates for sustainable agriculture because it, it is such a, a beacon for both things the climate change will have an irreversible impact on the Great Barrier Reef. We we know that. Science tells us that unequivocally. But at the same time, sediment runoff from farming that happens within the Great Barrier Reef catchment will also have an irreversible impact on the reef. And so it's it's handy in a way to have such an iconic structure, natural structure, that people can focus their attention on. Because if the only message they take home is we need to do this to protect the Great Barrier Reef, then we're, we're actually halfway there. If they can then be a little bit more specific or strategic and talk about how we can reduce sediment runoff or how we can reduce our reliance on fossil fuels, then then basically we're, we're the whole way there. So the Great Barrier Reef has been a wonderful beacon for conservationists and scientists. But I guess the diversity of Queensland is that while we have the Great Barrier Reef, we also have World Heritage National Parks with old-growth rainforest, both at the northern and the southern end of the state. And then we also have these outback areas and rangelands, which are full of endangered plants and animals. Uh, so the challenge is elevating those other landscapes so that people begin to appreciate them as much as they appreciate the Great Barrier Reef, which is very hard to do because unless you've been to the outback, as you have, Doug, it is nearly impossible to imagine the vastness and the diversity that you kind of get at the same time. All right, last question. What is your favorite natural landscape in Queensland? <gasps> oh, my goodness. Um, I, You know what? I don't like rainforests. I, <laughs> I actually I spend a little bit of time working with the Rainforest Trust of Australia and some other rainforest groups, but I'm a little bit claustrophobic in Australia, especially Queensland, is mostly hot and humid. So the last place I like to go is somewhere that is even hotter and more humid than where I already am. I think I like some of our rivers and creeks, actually. You know, where I live on the Gold Coast, we have some amazing uh, creeks that flow from the rainforest down to the ocean, and they are the most crystal clear, pristine waterways you could imagine, especially given that they come right through a city. We're very lucky to have them. All right, good choice. Ones that I think your Ameri my American listeners probably just not aware of the the you know the southeast corner of Queensland has some amazing natural areas. The Great Barrier Reef gets all the attention. Mm, yeah, totally. <laughs> Thank you, Sam, for coming on. That was very enlightening. And until the next time we we have a conversation, I appreciate your contribution to this. Thanks, Becky. Up next is Bob Spears, who is an NRM advisor on all things climate change with their NRM bodies. Okay, let's join in that conversation with Bob.
Bob, where are you based out of? Based in, in Brisbane, in Queensland, in Australia. I do some work for the state government. I do some work for the natural resource management bodies around. Yeah, well, so how did we, we were connected through Andrew Drysdale, and they're now called NRM Queensland, but when I used to work for them, they were called the Regional Groups Collective, and so you just you kind of do consulting work with them? Yeah, well, the Regional Groups Collective was their first name because there are 14 regional natural resource management bodies, and so the collective was sort of a peak group comprising the chairs of all of those those groups to provide some overall governance. They've re- renamed themselves Natural Resource Management Regions Queensland. And when I was with the, the state government, I was the uh, senior executive in the department responsible for the delivery of that program from the, from the state side and uh, collaborating with the Commonwealth, with the Australian government. Well, let's just jump right into that. So when I was there, they were, I think, in the second phase of updating their NRM plans. And I actually chatted a bit about these NRM plans and what they are with Andrew, so you don't necessarily have to go too much into that. But so you've been involved with this process, and I think it's just been the last year or two of updating those plans to include climate change. And so when I was there, this was like 2004, 2005, they were talking about climate change. But what does it mean to update it with climate change, like the work that you've done recently? What, what did that entail? So that, that work involved program funded by the Australian government, which was to update the regional natural resource management plans right around Australia, the uh, 14 in Queensland. It's really 13 plus one in Queensland. So that was between 14, uh, 2014 and 2016. And what we did was to, to extend, effectively remake the existing regional natural resource management plans to take climate uh, uh, climate change into account. Now, primarily climate adaptation, but a lot of the plans have gone into how to reduce their carbon footprint and where there are carbon opportunities. Okay, so I, you know, I, it's coming back to me of my time working with those NRM plans is that there's a lot of cross-sector communication, but at the same time, there's a lot of groups kind of working on their own. And so you have groups that are kind of, okay, the ag sector is doing adaptation, but then the NRM sector is doing adaptation. But you try to create a situation with those NRM plans where they're getting all those people to kind of participate and represent their sector when you when it comes to adaptation, right? Yep, that's, that's generally right. Because the regional natural resource bodies are community-based, all of the all of the asset systems and services that are within scope, if you like, including sustainable ag, sustainable agriculture, um, biodiversity conservation, landscape management, weeds and introduced introduced species, wetlands, climate change. There's a whole range of, of of regional natural resource issues and assets that those plans and those regional natural resource organisations address. And see so what what you see is is that that's that's just the assets which are NRM assets if you like or that are in scope for the natural resource management uh, arrangements in this state. But what you see under the state's current climate adaptation strategy is that is that they move across all of the sectors of the, the state's economy. So there's human health and well-being, there's, there's the small business, there's the industry and resources, there's agriculture, infrastructure, the tourism sector, the, the emergency services, the building infrastructure. So there's eight sectors as well as the government's role, the state government's role, and also local government's role. So what you see is that some of the asset systems and services that are of interest for the natural resource and environmental 
field, those assets and systems and services are also affected or, or owned in some cases by other sectors. So we work to try and make sure that there's synergy and consistency in the way in which all of the sectors are looking at putting in adaptation actions that affect asset systems and services that are within scope from a natural resource and environmental point of view. Now, say, for instance, wetlands. Like, wetlands are important from a from a biodiversity point of view, from an ecosystem management point of view, but they're also important from an agricultural point of view and also from, from a health point of view because that's where you tend to find mosquitoes breeding, for instance. So the way in which people manage these assets, such as a wetland, and or to encourage consistency and synergy so that no matter who's seeking to take action to... You know, pr- pr- provide better sort of response to, to, to climate risk, that those actions are consistent and that they don't actually diminish the interests of one sector in trying to improve the interests of, a, of another sector. You know, most of the people listening to this podcast will be Americans, and sometimes it's a bit confusing to tr- try to really explain what you, when you say like community engagement and then even NRM planning. And how I see it is all these different sectors, and you said eight sectors, the NRM bodies are probably one of the best platforms for these different sectors to actually come together and communicate with each other. I mean, is that just an accurate way of looking at it? That's a good way of looking at it, Doug. Because like, for instance, when we had the 2011 floods in uh, Queensland here, once the, once the landscape starts flooding, and the emergency services people and, and they're all doing what they need to do. When it comes at, particularly to recovery, they look to the regional natural resource management bodies amongst others to be able to get out on the ground, work with the community and help the recovery process. So what we find is that the natural resource management bodies, especially away from the large population centres, are well connected with the community, but they're also able to mobilise resources on the ground. And we talked a little bit about this with Andrew Drysdale, but just the makeup of those NRM boards. I mean, they truly are people on the ground that live out in these rural areas. And that's, that's absolutely correct. And of the, the regional bodies that we've got in Queensland, they're community-based, but they're not all the same. They're not, they're not part of government in the same sense that they might be in other states of Australia. So what we see here is that there's always some tension, if you like, or some creative tension between having representative members of the governing committees, the government, governing boards for those organisations, and skills-based. So what we're seeing is a number of the regional bodies are having a blending representation and skills-based boards. Say, for instance, so that you have a, a, someone from the agriculture sector, someone from the, from the tourism sector, someone from the Indigenous uh, community. That, that's what we mean by representation, that there are sectors, stakeholder groups that are represented on the management uh, boards of these organisations, but they also look for, for professional skills. I attended many of those regional groups collective board meetings, and they were <laughs> quite a riot to go to. I'm, I'm supposed to talk to Peter Douglas. You've probably crossed paths with Peter Douglas many times, and for as an American, he's he's a classic Australian character, but I think he represents you know the different kind of voices out there that, that are working on these issues. Yeah, look, I, I know Peter well. He's, he's Desert Channels Queensland, based in Longreach, in the in the middle of the outback, if you like, the grass country in Queensland. Lovely, lovely man. Grazier, local grazier, but very, very passionate about natural resource management at the community level. 
So he's he's one of, of many characters, and and we we're, we're really fortunate in that the community has been very heavily engaged with the delivery of regional natural resource management, and and people like Peter, but but many others that have, they they bring colour and movement as well as as well as expertise and and a grounded voice. Because when when you start dealing with this, you realise that there, <coughs> there's there are a number of voices that get taken into decision making around natural resource management. One of them is the science voice, the technical voice, the, the, the specialist information, if you like. Another is the policy to realm, the strategic information around outcomes for weed and pest management or water management and climate change. But there's also the lived experience. There's the, the local, the voice of, of lived experience. And, and what we look to do in the regional natural resource bodies is blend those three voices so that the outcomes for the community, but also the assets and the systems and services that are important within the, within scope for natural resource and environmental management, that those three perspectives, those three voices are all respected, but also contributing to the best possible outcomes. I was wondering if you could give me an example that, so the state of Queensland has their own expectations that they hope the NRM bodies are reaching with their adaptation plans, but are there some and I just maybe just one example of just an on the ground example of some adaptation planning. I don't know if it's an indigenous population or maybe a tourism example, but here is some adaptation happening on the coast or something like that. Do you, do you have something that you, you could kind of explain? Probably the, the, the clearest example is up in the Torres Strait where the work up there has been really very impressive and we're seeing adaptation around I guess just in in that particular plan, there are three outcomes which are clearly climate impact outcomes around uh, increased heat, sea level rise, and extreme weather events. But there are also six resilience building outcomes. So they're around stronger communities, around resources, healthy natural systems, uh, around enterprise and, and uh, human well-being, and so forth. And so what you see there is adaptation around building a conversation, but they're also addressing a program of building some seawalls in some. Uh, low-lying islands because the Torres Strait Islands there are some sand caves and some high islands but there are also some so-called mud islands which are uh, islands in the mouth of, of the river just on the, in the area between New Guinea and, and Australia. So you, you start to see some unequivocal hard uh, infrastructure to deal with uh, sea level rise and in that particular case it's primarily focused on so-called fair weather flooding so it's, it's uh, flooding during the, the high tide periods of the year. So there's that. So, but what you also see in Australia is that we have a really variable climate. So when you go to the Western areas, that climate variability covers up the long, the slow change in climate regime towards a warmer climate over, over a period of decades. So what we're dealing with there are adaptation processes which provide greater Resilience, but also for other benefits. So that one of the really nice ones out in, in the southwest is cluster fencing. So it's driven by outcomes around managing wild dogs, about uh, pest, uh, pest animals, but it's also building collaboration and cooperation between landholders to better manage their, the land condition within, within large pastoral holdings. So, and in that plan, there, there are other nice little, um, Elements sitting there, like uh, the carbon farming principle, which bloke called Alan Loud has been developing over many years, and in, in fact he's been he's been over in Hawaii talking with uh, grazers over there about the cattle industry over there about using a principle of perhaps changing the way in which you manage your grazing property so that you 
rest your country or spell your country for a period after a certain amount of rain, I think he's talking about 15 millimetres of rain, spelling it for a few weeks to allow the the plants to get away, capture the carbon out of the atmosphere, sequester it and capture it into the into the root systems and soils so that it builds the carbon capacity of your soils and builds their resilience and condition. So there are a number of things which are quietly working towards greater climate resilience as well as perhaps the example in the Torres Strait where there's seawalls being built. You also worked on this agricultural sector adaptation plan, at least your name's part of it. I'm, uh, I'm just curious if you could walk through highlighting how the ag sector in Queensland is approaching adaptation. And I, and I think this is a document that GROCOM and QFF were, were the leads on. Yeah, the, the ag, agriculture sector, sectoral adaptation plan or climate adaptation plans, it's called. It's, it's out now. It's been published. It was one of the first two of the eight sectors that went through and it drew together a number of stakeholders there was a, a, to, to identify basically a, a first cut amongst agricultural stakeholders of what the risks were and what kind of responses are being seen or being put in, put in place at, at this stage in, in the agriculture sector. So that, that plan brought together the state of where we are, if you like, and then looked at further work pretty much that needs to get done. It was one of the first, as I said, of the eight sectors. Since then, the, we're, the ones we're currently working on at the moment, the, the human health and well-being, the biodiversity and ecosystems, and the, the emergency services plans. So what we're seeing with those eight sectors is, is to some extent slightly different approaches, but sector-appropriate approaches. And so what, what the state government asked us to do from a natural resource point of view was to put together a cross-cutting mechanism so that we could work across the sectors to make sure that the, the asset systems and service and the interest and, and issues from a natural resource point of view were reflected in each of those sectors. Now, we've been, we've been doing that. Ag was, in a, was one of the early days. And so what we're seeing now is that we've put together a clear specification, if you like, of, of, the, of the interest and issues that are within scope from a natural resource point of view. And then we've gone and said, well, what are the areas which would either block or if you release the block would enable better adaptation across the sectors? So we've been, we've been working with each of those groups that put together the, the uh, that are uh, responsible for putting together the plans to highlight issues across the plans. One, for instance, is starting to think about natural resource or, or conservation assets, if you like, as natural infrastructure so that if we can get the conversation working with the infrastructure sector and in the in the agriculture sector and in emergency services around beaches and sand dunes and wetlands and floodplains being seen as natural infrastructure then the conversation starts to be how can we use landscape function to take energy out of extreme weather events, so therefore reduce harm in, a, in an emergency services sense, keep people safer by, by perhaps not allowing or, or, or constraining planning and approvals for infrastructure being built in floodplains or, or higher at-risk areas, or managing development in coastal areas so that the dunes and the, and the beaches can, can in fact help to take some of the energy from extreme weather events. So the, 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 I suppose the critical point that we're at at the moment is to say that, that across the sectors, some of the advantages of managing the natural resources are perhaps a little bit 
below the radar. You know, if you're in the, the human health business, then, you know, talking about sand dunes and wetlands and things perhaps isn't the first thing that comes to mind when you're dealing with, with human health. But by starting to have a conversation about how we can manage the environment to take energy out of extreme weather events or to allow natural systems to more easily autonomously adapt in that natural systems tend to adapt for themselves. So providing adaptive opportunity, they're the kind of conversations we're starting to weave in across the sectors at the moment. Well, we don't do that very well in the United States. And I, and I wonder if there'll be tools, these eight different sectors that you're talking about, like in the US, the conservation sector is rarely talking to the agricultural sector. And if you are truly identifying those sort of crossover areas where you can do some effective adaptation, that would be in high demand. So I just, I would encourage you to have those kind of tools that many of us could learn from that process. Cause I, I do feel like it's not perfect, but the NRM regional process, at least on paper, lends itself to sort of cross-sector communication that you're not getting in a lot of places. And it's just, it's, it seems like the potential is so great there. Thanks, Doug. And I think we feel pretty strongly about that, that by having people engage in a conversation that makes sense in their worldview, if you like, that's really, really quite critical because, you know, I know with the health sector, you know, they're really busy with lots and lots of things, lots of demands all the time. And so, therefore, being able to have, a, I suppose, a, a gentle conversation in a way which shows how you can make life a little bit easier. It's a little like we're saying with, with, climate, with climate risk. Climate isn't really creating any new risks. You know, some sort of appear to be like new risks like, you know, the polar vortex and so forth. But ultimately, what we're seeing is that climate amplifies existing risks. So when we're talking with the agriculture sector, the emergency services sector, all we're saying is, is that, by warming the global climate, we capture more energy in the Earth's system, so therefore there's more energy exchanged in, in extreme weather events, and we also see the climate regime shift. There's a little like lots of good work being done in the US, like the Audubon Society classically, around uh, birds uh, shifting around the, the landscape. And what we're, what we're seeing is that, is that those birds are shifting because the moisture and temperature regimes that they like are shifting and they're just following them. And we're seeing that natural systems are shifting. We said with the fisheries particularly, but what we're seeing is, is that agriculture will also follow that. And so the, the conversation we're having is to say, as you identify the risk to your enterprise or your interests that, that's being presented by the effects of climate change, then see those risks as just amplifying existing risks that you're already managing, but be aware of how that works so that you can adjust your risk management in order to be able to accommodate the changes that they, that of course, oh, that's really climate adaptation. But I would say, I just want to say, Doug, hey, that this climate adaptation, it really is quite scary. And we keep saying to the sectors, the most important thing is to mitigate the problem because in risk management, preventing the problem is the best thing you can do. So, so mitigating the effects of climate change, reducing emissions is still number one priority. But given that a number of changes are already locked into the system, then we're looking at how best to respond to those to, to maintain the, or to sustain that human enterprise. Very well said. Any sort of last thoughts, uh, any, any final wisdom you want to share with us before we wrap this up? The, the only thing I'd say is that one of my motivations because is, is that I've got grandkids. And so what I keep saying is that the 
climate change seems to be focused on, oh, you know, this is, this is what will happen in 20, 2100, uh, the end of the century, but we'll have this and have that and maybe 80 centimetres of sea level rise and so forth. I really, really worry because my youngest grandson is three years old in two days' time and he will still be alive then, you know. And so what we do now, I want him to be able to look back and say, well, Grandad, what did you do when you could? And so that's why I'm still heavily engaged in helping helping manage climate risk. Well, that was an awesome final message. Okay, thank you so much. All righty. Thanks, thanks a lot, Doug. Now that you've heard from some of the professionals working in interim bodies, I wanted to share with you some stories from people who have worked the land for decades. These are ranchers from Queensland who had to experience weather and climate firsthand. They have some wonderful stories and hopefully it'll give you a sense of the struggles people on the land have to deal with. The field of adaptation is only starting to make its way into rural practices. It's been mainly an urban focus. First off is Ann Ballinger and then Peter Douglas. I knew Peter from my days in Queensland and it was a pleasure to reconnect. Both have just recently retired from ranching but I also have them on because they were members of the Natural Resource Management Body representing landowners in their region. I hope this gives you a window into the challenges of living on the land and what adapting to climate change will mean to these people working directly on that land. Their stories are awesome. Please stick around for all of it. All right, let's head out to the bush with Ann Ballinger and Peter Douglas. Hey, adapters, I am back with Ann Ballinger. Hey, Ann, how are you? Well, thanks, Doug. Where are you at right now? Where am I talking to you from? I'm actually living. I've just retired and I've just been um, done a month yesterday at a place called Budrum, which is on the Sunshine Coast, just north of Brisbane in Queensland. So you've just been retired for a month. How do you feel? Have you been adjusting to it nicely or do you feel like you need to get up and do what you used to do? Yeah, no, I have to say, Doug, that when I first arrived for the first couple of weeks, all I wanted to do was go home. And, uh, yeah, but I'll always miss the bush and I always very, very much keep associated with it and particularly the people and the communities. They're they're amazing, unique things out there. Well, maybe you could uh, describe a bit about that. So you owned, was it Stockholm Station? Was that the name of the property? Yes, that's correct. My husband and I, and we have three children, bought it in 1988 and then we went through some pretty torrid times in the uh, crash of the wool industry in the late, uh, very late 80s, early 90s. And my husband had a little aircraft. He, he used to be a pilot for, he used to fly out in the Channel Country for one of the big cattle companies years ago. So he got an aircraft to, because we pulled quite a lot of our country, pulled the trees down and planted buffalo grass. And so he wanted to be able to see our country, as well as when those tough times came along with wool virtually crashing. He took the plane out to work as well, so he used to go to other properties and put buffalo seed in, as well as throw 1080 baits out, a meat bait that has poison in it to kill wild dogs. Yeah, that, that's what happened in those days. And over the period, uh, our kids went off to boarding school, well, initially, I taught them most of the time doing school of distance education, as in school of the air, <laughs> uh, for many years. And then um, Bill had a couple of bouts of 
uh, depression over that period. And then in the year 2000, he uh, got very sick and had another bout. And uh, yes, he actually died of a heart attack on Boxing Day, the year 2000. Now, from that time onwards, which was 18 years ago, I've actually lived there on, on my own and, and run the place or yeah, tried to do the best I could. But anyway, it, it was a great challenge. And as I say, it's a, it's a wonderful place to bring children up as well as, you know, really feel that you're doing something for um, not only yourself and your family, but your your district. And I'd have to go as far as saying uh, doing a real job for your country. That That's a very traumatic thing, losing your husband like that. I guess how long did it take you after losing your husband? Did you make the decision that you're going to stick with it? It's hard enough, I guess, with two people dedicated to it let alone doing it by yourself? Oh, funnily enough, Doug, I, I didn't. For me, it wasn't a hard decision. I knew that I really wanted to uh, stay there and it was the place I wanted to be. I, I, I imagined that there'd be, there'd be lots of ups and downs and plenty of challenges, which obviously there were, but I guess that happens wherever you are. Uh, some of the family members felt that it was going to be uh, not a good idea for me to stay there. And, and I remember saying to them, look, just give, give us 12 months, we'll see how we go. And uh, after 18 years, we've, we've actually never been back to have a discussion <laughs> about it. So, yeah, it, I seem to be able to cope okay. <laughs> Sounds like it. Well, could you tell me a little bit about, and, and if I'm pr- pronouncing this wrong, please correct me, is is the town or the tiny little town, Mudabura, that, that I guess that's near where your property was at? Yes, Doug, Mudabura. That's correct. You've done a good job at pronouncing that. <laughs> that's terrific. It was, we were 36 k's from Mudabura on a, on a dirt road. And uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a tiny little, it's a tiny little centre. It's, uh, there's only about 60 people there. It's actually uh, very close to the geographical centre of the state of Queensland in Australia. So it uh, is also quite famous for its find of dinosaurs. The Mudabarasaurus was found oh. about six k's from the town. So yeah, it's a it's a great little centre. has a has a a, a pub which is the centre of all those little towns right. uh, and. <laughs> And a, a, a small store, a great hall where we, we have meetings and uh, all met and that sort of thing. But no, it's a good little centre. You had the challenges of even running the, the, the cattle ranch that you had, but you have been very involved with a lot of environmental issues in the area. Was that Did that happen when you sort of took over yourself or has that always been an ethic? Could you kind of describe that, the story of your own environmentalism when it comes to your property and, and just the region in general? Yeah, Doug, um, one of the things I, I should add was that when we first went there, as I said before, we did have sheep and we didn't go out of sheep. We stayed with sheep even though the prices went down. But only six years ago, I, w- I did go out of sheep because the wild dogs started eating them. And I couldn't cope with that. The emotion of that, as well as the obviously um, economic loss, was too much. So I took on cattle full time and I took on people. I had a family from North Queensland that adjusted the whole place. So they put their cattle on and paid me for using the land. But as far as being involved 
I think you'd find that every single person that lives on a farm who owns stock is very, very environmentally savvy and uh, I guess it's just my involvement with Desert Channels just literally was a lead-on from that. I've always been in, involved and interested in the environment and I, I think, uh, as I say, most people that live in, in isolation or live in parts of different climatic and also ecological areas have to be. They're, we're very, they're very close to nature and so to be close to nature, you've got to be uh, really uh, understand it. And I think through that, I um, had a little bit of time and I was invited to be on the board and uh, uh, I've only been there for, um, <clears throat> I think it's five years, but I've certainly enjoyed it, being part of that organisation. Uh, there's going to be quite a few American listeners to this podcast. Can you describe what is Desert Channels? Desert Channels is there to enhance the economic productivity and ecological sustainability of the region's natural resources. It's there to encourage the adoption of best management practice, as in landholders, based on sound business and environmental principles. Uh, Research and science uh, is combined with out-of-the-box thinking and yeah, it, it uh, has a commitment to the economy, the economy as well as the very much the environment in all different ways. Well, could you describe some of the environmental problems that you had to deal with? I guess even on a daily basis, you know, there's invasive species, there's drought. I mean, what were the sort of the main ones that kept you busy? Well, I think one of the biggest subjects, I suppose you could call it, when you're a farmer, is the weather. We're totally to a point, controlled by the weather. Once upon a time, we we just hoped and, and prayed and thought that luck had a big part of it, which to a point, I guess, luck is, it depends if you believe in luck, I guess. It, it does. Uh, on the other hand, I think we have become much better at managing, holistically managing our businesses with the uh, approach to um, ensure that the, our land practices have adapted to climate change and variability as in the way we graze our land, the way we are very conscious, and this has been happening forever, of course, trying to keep feral animals out of the land. I've tried all different sorts of things for that. Just at the moment they're doing a series of terrific cluster fencing in Western Queensland for wild dogs to try and keep the, the dogs out. So they can run sheep again. And also one of the things on Stockholm was uh, over the last few years is the invasion of prickly acacia trees. I had a lot to do with uh, trying to eradicate as many as I could before I left the property. They just bloom in good times, as in good seasons, and um, they can turn into a scrub and take over the land and and then um, the grass doesn't grow. They are a great, they were introduced actually as a great source, which they are, for stock in the, I think it was about the uh, 1920s or something. But of course, um, because they have a great supply of protein uh, within their leaf system, as well as they grow this fabulous pod that's lovely and juicy, unfortunately, they can become um, very invasive and form a scrub. 
Well, you'd mentioned climate change and I'm just curious. And I imagine that lone pub in Mudabera, is that something that you would talk about with other cattle ranchers? Would you talk about climate change or would it just, would you be focusing more on just the drought? You've always been dealing with drought, but do you sense that more of the landowners are actually talking about climate change and the need to adapt to it? Or, or is it talked about like that? Well, I don't think you can get away from the fact that um, <clears throat> the, uh, I don't know about other parts of the world, but certainly this part of the world has become hotter and um, events are more extreme. Now, we also believe, I'm sure a lot of people believe that <clears throat> the climate is changing all the time and has been forever, which I guess it is. So because of the the change, particularly the heating up and the length of time now that we do have a very hot summer. You know, it goes for a lot longer now is what I'm trying to say as opposed to, <clears throat> I gather, once upon a time. I, I think, yes, I, I do believe that people are addressing that and, and they don't want to, <laughs> none of us want to particularly, but I think, um, yeah, most people in the Mudborough pub are talking about uh, as well as lots of other issues, particularly drought and wherefores and what fores of drought, but they are admitting to the fact that the climate is changing. Well, there's this whole notion, if it is changing and if things are getting hotter, that this in some way is new. And you, you hear about a lot of local governments and state governments really starting to focus on adaptation, how are we going to adapt to climate change? And is that sort of outreach or, or is the state or local governments working with landowners in, in Queensland on these issues? And, you know, and I, I guess they have to be sensitive, too, is a lot of times the landowners are, listen, we're on the land. We know what's best. Is, is there a relatively good relationship? Let's say uh, the Desert Channels, do they come out and they talk about adaptation? And are they telling you actually to do anything different than you've ever done before? Or is, it, is it new or is it just sort of doing the old things differently? Doug, I think um, I'd have to add here that in Queensland, the state government in the environmental department is very, very focused on the Great Barrier Reef. Mm -hmm. A lot of money statewide and financially has gone that way because I gather, I haven't seen it with my own two eyes, but uh, I believe, and I'm sure it's right, that the the coral is um, on the Great Barrier Reef. is A lot of it is, is dying. Now, uh, the next person will say, well, don't worry because it's, again, it'll, it'll, it's just a change that will happen and it'll come back. I don't know. But as far as Desert Channels goes, sadly, I think we have this incredible and it's only getting worse in everything that happens in over what we call over the range, which was over the Great Dividing Range, which is, runs through Toowoomba, which is only two hours from Brisbane. So there's a lot of country from the Great Dividing Range through to the border of of Northern Territory, a lot of people are very, very ignorant about what happens out there, understandably, because no one goes out there. There are not many people that live out there. And those of us that do live there, it's very difficult to get our point across because um, unless it's like a lot of things, unless you live it, you don't understand it. And it, it is hard to explain because sometimes we have to be quite ruthless, even with animals. And as in um, what I mean by that is in 
being cruel to be kind. So it's very hard for state governments and politicians who don't come from that part of the world to understand our needs. And DCQ has a tremendous amount of trouble getting that message across. And so funding is not doesn't necessarily flow. As far as landholders go, I think the land management has changed tremendously over the, uh, oh, look, just in the last 20 years. <clears throat> There's some, been some great groundbreaking uh, leaders in the field who have taught landholders to change because so much of our pastoral industry was based on a European style, which the climates are so totally different. And I think we're now into a practical way of land management much more and particularly the young that are out there, <clears throat> they've got their heads in a different space to my generation, I feel, in a lot of ways. Um, and I think if you can combine the two, it's it's been really good. And I, I believe that <clears throat> the agriculture and land management today is as good or better than it's probably ever been. That's an interesting notion. And so you're just recently retired, but what would you sort of advise? And I'm sort of envisioning a, we have these adaptation mentors. If someone took over your property or you have a young person coming in and wanting to do what you used to do, how would you sort of advise them when you think about climate change on how to manage that land? Is that just come down to like the sort of the type of animals that you might have on the land or how you're getting access to water? I mean, if you're giving some adaptation advice how, how would you advise someone who's just starting up and trying to be what you used to do? Well, in the year 2014, uh, we, we, or I should say firstly, we're very fortunate uh, where I was at Stockholm to have to be in the Artesian Basin, which is a great area of Queensland that the water, when you put a, drill a hole down, the water just flows out of the ground. And it's the most magical thing in that dry country. Once upon a time, or well, not that long ago, um, before 2014, the, there were what they called drains, bore drains that ran through the landscape like a little creek type thing, only about um, uh, 60 metres across. Uh, and it took the water through the property for the stock to drink out. That became very messy. It was difficult to control, uh, hard to manage, so and a, a quite a waste of water. So in the year 2014, we put piped the whole scheme. Um, so we put it in pipes and the pressure from the bore was able to run it around the property into troughs, into cement troughs, which was a huge improvement. Uh, one of the selling points of the property I felt the other day when we sold earlier in the year. That's in place and that's been put in place to be no more than a kilometre and a half from any part of the countryside. So the stock don't have to walk more than a kilometre and a half to get to water. Now, um, the people that have taken over are very savvy, uh, in my opinion, with their management practice and so um, I'm sure they will... Uh, do more fencing to promote probably smaller paddocks so the country can be rotated, the stock can be rotated, i.e. the country can be um, grazed and then rested. And that, I think, is the proven modern way of uh, grazing land today, that that's natural 
grasslands. You know, that's very interesting. Some technical fixes and I guess making water more accessible to, to the cattle. But do you, do you feel, l- let's say you factor in, as you said, things are getting hotter. Well, even when you have those kind of changes in accessibility to water, do you think 30 years from now, if things keep getting hotter, that people are going to still be able to do what they're doing now? Will you have these sort of technical fixes or do you think there'll just be major changes in, in what happens out there in the outback? No, no, I, I don't think there'll be major change. I mean, look, change is happening all the time. It's constant, and that's great. But the, the if we don't have the the grazing, if it's done well, as I just explained, I feel that it it can a it's very good for the environment. You can see that it's it's free. The environment, the soil, is so much freer. The economically, it's so much better, and that's extremely important if you're going to live there. The other, the the opposition to that is that you don't have people living there. You shut it all up as because of you're worried about that you're trampling the soil or you're using the country too much, and that would be absolutely disastrous because then there would be no one looking after it, which would encourage all manner of not only pigs and pests and and the country just completely getting out of hand, the, the uh, for instance, the prickly acacia totally getting out of hand, more out of hand than it is today. Uh, it would ruin the country. So I think we've just got to get smarter and smarter and smarter and I feel very confident that with technology and the help of science and practical living there and seeing and feeling and hearing what's happening is going to be the way of the future for um, the pastoral country of, I would say, of Australia. So if there's long-term management of the land, I, I think from what I've read is you, you've been a proponent of carbon storage. And so this whole idea of if you're properly managing the land, as you just described, one of the additional benefits is that you're getting carbon stored up in these this healthier landscape. Is there any progress on that? Are, you, are, you, are people able to do that or is that just something that's not mature yet? Absolutely. I think it's happening now. I think that's a, a properly grazed landscape the, the carbon is being stored extremely well. And I think even though there's lots of variation in our climate, as in drought, uh, too much rain, that doesn't happen too much out there, but the, the land still can be managed. People are very conscious of not overstocking the land to a bare landscape, which, of course, that's one of the most degradating things for the landscape. I think you've also been a big proponent and you've mentioned it a little bit is that getting younger people to move back to the outback or just move there in general, you think it's such a great environment for people to live and a lot of good things would happen there. And I just, uh, maybe you could elaborate on that or maybe even use this as a chance to sort of share why you think it's such a great area for people to establish their roots in. Well, look, even the short time I've been down here, Doug, uh, you know, I, I can understand why people that have a just a wee sniff of inland Australia or the bush, in inverted commas, uh, how they appreciate it so much because, yeah, the lives, are, the busyness, the, the noise, 
the traffic down here, whereas out there is just the most beautiful, peaceful life. Obviously, you've got to like it. You know, life is what you make of it. And no matter where you are, it's really to do with your attitude and in the perception that we're so isolated out there. Well, really, I don't feel any more isolated out there than I than I probably do here, really. I mean, I'm very fortunate. I've got friends just down the road. But out there, I, I had we all had such a terrific connection. I don't know. It's very difficult to describe. But, yeah, I feel it's very... Um, very free and, and a wonderful place for children to grow and use their own initiative and find something to play with and make work out of very small amount of uh, materialistic things, which I think has got to be good for your soul. And I feel that, yeah, it's when you do get together, it's special. When you do receive some sort of a small, what you might describe as a luxury, that's also very special. And it gives one a, a feeling of meaningfulness and goodness. Now, I'm not saying that it's the only place that that happens, for God's sake, but uh, I do believe that it is a great life for young people, a great life for young families and a great challenge, if you like it. Anyone happens to be traveling to Mudabera and they, they visit that lone pub, if they go in and they say your name, would, would the person there rec- know you, I assume? They could say, I, I heard from Ann Ballinger. Well, yes, uh, unless the publican changes or some of the change. I'll just let you into a little secret, Doug. My nickname in Mudabera is Lipstick because years ago, years ago, I often wear lipstick and when I um, went into the pub, I left lipstick on the glass and one of my neighbours came in the next day and said, told the publican that there was a bit of lipstick still on the glass and the publican said, well, you've got to blame your neighbour for that. She left that lipstick on that glass yesterday. (laughs) Nice. Oh, always good to have a nice nickname. Okay, last question. Uh, My American listeners who happen to be traveling to Australia, your typical uh, visitor to Australia is visiting Sydney. They're visiting Melbourne. They're going to the Great Barrier Reef. But if they made the effort to go out to your former neck of the woods, Mudabera, Longreach, is there a single spot that's worth them coming out to and visiting? Well, I guess it depends what they're interested in. Uh, There is fantastic monuments now to the dinosaurs. There's a great one just out of Wheaton. Uh, we've just built one in Mudabara out of local stone. The Qantas Founders in Longreach is fantastic. The Stockman's Hall of Fame in Longreach is fantastic. But personally, if I was going out there and I'd never been there before, what I would probably enjoy more than anything is finding a quiet spot to camp and lying in your swag and looking at the stars and sitting around the campfire it almost makes me feel emotional because that's what the real bush is all about, including the people that you're with. That's perfect. All right. That is absolutely perfect. Thank you, Anne, for sharing your your experiences and and your advice on on this issue, but uh, I appreciate you making the time. Thanks so much, Doug. I'm here with Peter Douglas, and what do you do? What's your relationship at working with the land? I came up to Queensland in 
69 from Victoria. Worked around cattle stations and sheep stations and things, and then uh, we ended up buying a place 20 miles out of Junda, which is down the Thompson River from Longreach. 70,000 acres, and we ran sheep and cattle there for 40 odd years before we sold up last year. 40 years, so that that's that's almost two generations of dealing with weather and climate. And what were some of the hardships of climate when you were working the land, independent of like what you think might be climate change, but what were the sort of the big issues you had to deal with? Well, it's fairly clearly defined. We bought home in 78. We had a winter rain that year and sort of kicked things off pretty well. And then right through until 99, 2000, we always had some sheep or some cattle. We always had a core herd that we could drop the number back from, build up from uh, and go again. We had two very wet years, 99 and 2000. There was 26 and 24 inches. We were running 10,000 sheep but a few hundred head of cattle plus 700 cattle on adjustment. And after that, it virtually stopped raining properly uh, in patterns. And then it became hit and miss. Uh, we didn't shear 2003. We sold, sold down progressively. Uh, rained again in 2004. We bought a hat full of sheep and a few cattle, and we had all them gone again 2005. Uh, didn't rain. And we were on and off, destocked, restocked, adjustment stock. It was nine years up until two and three years ago that we actually used the shearing shed. Uh, there was a long gap there. So ever since 2000, it's been a react to the rainfall, assess what you've got, no germination of Mitchell grass, which was the biggest trouble. We had to nurse everything along. So we've actually carried a lot less stock in the last 15 or 16 years we were there than what we did beforehand. I want to ask a bit more. Yeah, so you, you bought this ranch. It's 70,000 acres. That is a big chunk of land. Did, did you have growing up, were you doing the same thing or was this something completely new? I know. I went to school in Melbourne. I left there, left school when I was a bit over 16 and 16, four months or something. I went working on farms in southern Victoria down in Gippsland, up in New South Wales. I uh, went home, worked as a labourer. For nine months, got enough money to buy a car and came up to Queensland when I was 19. You got married at some period, and so you, you purchased the 70,000-acre ranch, and was the expectation that you, you would do cattle, you would do sheep? Did you have it all in mind when you purchased the property? Yeah, I, I was um, managing cattle stations in the Territory and in around Windora, and I got married in 77. Uh, we bought the place the end of 77. November the 22nd, and it was sheep country, open, open Mitchell grassland. So up we went, and we, we uh, I suppose you'd say we did a bit of hard. We had a tilly light. We didn't have electricity or anything like that for a long time. We had a party line phone. The kids didn't come along till 80 and 81, but it was it was good. We, we got enough money to poke along. I worked off the place and all that sort of stuff, and... We had eight neighbours on our mail run. When I left, uh, October, there was no one left on the mail run. All those places are either absentee landlord or been aggregated. And, and is there a reason for that? Is it just the, the market or is it, is it the climate? Well, markets and climate. 
not very often you get a good season, you get a good client, good uh, prices as well. When it does happen, it's magic. But to really win, you need to have some rain in your region when other people miss out so that people want your product. If it's a total drought, no one wants to buy anything. So you really got to slog it out. And we're on fairly marginal country, 70,000 acres would run probably on average about 8,000 sheep and 150 cattle. That was okay when we started. 150,000 acres would be a bare minimum now to make a decent living. Like we educated the kids, put them through boarding school and that sort of nonsense. Uh, <laughs> but it was just this very marked change in 2000 and fortunately the kids had finished school and were working about. So uh, there wasn't that drain. But it's just, it's economics, it's climate, you're not one year in 15 is a Mitchell grass germination rain. Uh, so you've got to really, if you get that sort of rainfall period, you want to get your animals out of the way as much as possible and put them up one end of the place and let the other end of the place get a go on. Reaction to rainfall now is, is much more important. In fact, it's crucial. Before you had rain on top of rain, now we're getting one big hit of rain, say in late March. That'll carry our country through until October, November. But if we don't get early storms, they start to fall away fairly smartly. Could you describe just because most of my listeners won't be familiar with the, the Mitchell grass system? I mean, what is it and why, why has it been such a, I guess, a popular system for, for grazers to raise cattle on? It's a uh, native grass and uh, was named after Sir Thomas Mitchell, one of the early European explorer fellows. Uh, he called it the Australia Felix when he came up through back in New South Wales and up into Queensland. And it, some of the tussocks will live 20 to 40 years, but if they don't get any rain for a couple of years, they tend to curl up and die. Even if you only get a bit of a shower, it's enough to keep them kicking along. And if you graze it down to, say, a fist-sized stubble, you leave it very prone to the sun, killing it over the summertime. So it's it's got to be eaten. Otherwise, it goes rank and sort of dies off, uh, but it doesn't have to be flogged. It, it will take a flogging, but it won't take repeated floggings. They've done trials where Mitchell grass that's been left alone, uh, intensively grazed and then and left alone again, has got a root system about 10 feet deep, wow. whereas the stuff that gets hammered all the time has got a root system about half a foot deep, so it just cannot survive in dry times. You were on the land for 40 years, and you and I met when you were the, the chair of Desert Channels, the, the NRM group, and I was at the Regional Groups Collective. And I think you had your 10-year anniversary when you retired. You, you had basically worked with Desert Channels for 10 years. Do I have that right? Yes, that's correct. Uh, 2002, when it was put together, the Cooper Creek Advisory Group and the Diamantina Group uh, got together and asked me if I'd be the chair because John Howard's government had put in this regional organisation all over Australia, Natural Resource Management Regional Operations. So why did you do it? I'm sure the, the ranch kept you busy. What, what sort of inspired you? You were asked to do it, but I mean, were you seeing things or were you just sort of, it's just something you th was thinking about more recently? Why did you go ahead and make the leap to commit that much time? Because you owe it to the country. It gives you a living, and it's a case of giving back. I think the boys had, the boys weren't home 
after 2000. So uh, there was that that let go, and the seasons had gone backwards. So I had a bit of time on my hands, not as much as I thought, uh, a lot less than what, what I, what I thought. <laughs> but she actually looked after the place, and I batted around the countryside and did desert channels work plus whatever contract work was about as well. So what did you you think at first of what the NRM bodies were doing? And, you know, the collective represented all of the, I think it was 14 regional bodies at the time, but did you feel like it was a good model to represent the community? Yes. When it first kicked off, it was 14 regions in Queensland. Ours was the biggest, uh, about a third of Queensland, the Lake Air Basin portion of Queensland. And... People were interested in looking after their country and getting what they could out of their country without destroying it, and we encouraged that sort of stuff. Looking back on it, the government set up the regional bodies on public service lines. They had fairly large boards, and the government insisted that the boards be trained, and most of the CEOs came from the public service any project over ten thousand dollars had to be audited, so there was quite an expensive infrastructure to maintain. And now they've been turning the the money tap off uh, gradually by slow degrees, and the in, inland regions are really battling to stay afloat. Whereas the eastern regions down along the Great Barrier Reef, um, I think there's fifty odd employees at Fitzroy Basin Association, where I think our maximum might have been twenty eight. Hmm. And I want you to put your memory cap on here. And I was there 2003, 2004 when I first started. So I was, we overlapped. I didn't realize, I thought you had been around longer. Um, <laughs> and do you remember when climate change first really kind of came up as an NRM issue? Cause I remember we did agriculture and climate change workshop in Brisbane. I don't know if you got to attend that, but the collective hosted it. But when do you remember it really starting to kind of pop up on your radar as an issue to deal with? Yeah, about 2003, four. there was the usual bits and pieces in the, in the paper and the scientific papers on the North and South Pole and so on and so forth. And all of a sudden, well, we'd had a, three years of introduction to that since 2000 on the oddball rainfall. But the story always was that the weather out our way used to go in 10-year cycles. So in that 10-year cycle, you'd get a couple of dry years, one good year, and three or four medium sort of years where you just poked along and and didn't try and uh, be a well-beater, but you just got ready for the next time it rained or the next time it went dry, Uh, instead of which it suddenly was dry more often than it was than wet, and I mean properly dry, and what rainfall we did get was not well-timed. Like normally it's a summer rainfall area, and if you got a bit of winter rain, that was a bonus. But if you get winter rain when you've got no alive Mitchell grass or chaffed-off Mitchell grass, it, it's absolute devastation. It just turns it black with a bit of cold weather, and you can go from fat sheep to poor sheep in six weeks. When they were talking about these changes and drought being such a, a big issue and things were being a little bit different, and they talked about climate change, were you at all skeptical or were you thinking, well, this is something bigger here? I mean, w- w- at first, what do you remember? No, I reckon it was a lot of bullshit. Okay. Uh, okay. In yeah. In Aminka, down down south of us in South Australia, has got the most variable temperature range, I think, just about anywhere in the world. and 
our climate has always been variable, but it was the consistency, <laughs> if you could say, that we're coming into the variability that suddenly, yes, we do have a problem. Uh, I think they might be right. And you had to be much, much quicker from a business manager's point of view to get in, get out, uh, use what you had. You didn't have a perennial under, under story of, of grass, you know, that you could, you could run on and then harvest it when it burst into life again. All of a sudden, you got a bad rain or an early late rain or whatever. You figured out what you had and then you got rid of your stock. Uh, we, we were, as I say, unstocked more often than we were stocked for the, for the last 10 or 12 years. And so as chair of Desert Channels, and I remember this fondly that each of the, the groups had to come up with their own NRM plan and they were starting to, to have like a chapter or a section on how to deal with climate change. And so do you feel like the D- Desert Channel's board and the community was on board with adding that to that NRM plan? No, it took a long time to actually push it, to get people to actually acknowledge uh, that there was a change in the climate. The I think the nicest way they got out of it was to call it climate variability. It just got worse. But uh, now when you look at it, and I've been out, uh, 12 months and you look back where the people we left behind our country got rain in March and 10k south of that didn't and you can see the, the distinct cutoff line and then about another 150k south they had a bit of Christmas rain which is actually going to keep them going till about October instead of having general rainfall we got broken up rainfall and it never used to be as bad as this. There is, you can't argue the fact that things have changed. And you sort of mentioned it earlier, and this has probably been a long-term struggle. And I remember this at the board meetings too, is that you have the, the I guess, the inland NRM bodies, and then you had the Great Barrier Reef bodies, and it was just such a different way how the government responded to it. And I'm sure that's even more so in the context of climate change. And do you feel like the outback communities get the resources they need to deal with the climate change impacts that, say, the Great Barrier Reef bodies get? No, nowhere near it. The Great Barrier Reef is, is um, most people out west quite cynically think it's a scientist's um, gold mine. A lot of the television news articles tend to take photographs of blackened reef uh, and sometimes in the side of the viewfinder you'll see a bit of live reef that they don't want to talk about. You know, the, the climate chopped and changed before we got here. They had sludge and stuff going into the reef lagoon. We may have accelerated, that's fine, but it either adapts or it dies. Uh, and that, that's basically it. If, if the ocean's going to heat up, it's not a great deal that the farmers of Australia are going to do to stop that. Well, as a non-Australian, I can I can tell you that many of us in the U.S. we we look at the Great Barrier Reef fondly, but the fact that I lived there and I uh, dealt with hearing the different perspectives, I understand the kind of resentment that it that it entails. And it's kind of interesting too, is that the way that they've handled it is that Queensland needs to adapt to climate change, but when you create such two different, the Great Barrier Reef gets all the attention and a lot of the funding and things like drought, which are a bit more subtle, especially in the outback. 
it's not getting the attention and the, I guess, the funding that it needs, and you're creating uneven playing field for adapting. That's correct. Desert Channels at the moment's been pushing quickly acacia eradication. It's about a $40 million job to clean it up. That's in the Lake Air Basin portion. They're flat out getting two or $300,000 a year, which they, they put to work with the pastoralists involved. Uh, the federal government just dropped $455 million into one of the Great Barrier Reef committees, virtually unasked for. It's, it's a political football, unfortunately, because the Great Barrier Reef is a bloody marvellous thing. There's no doubt about it. Uh, there's a lot of people who make a lot of money out of the, or make a living out of the Great Barrier Reef. It's the tourism, it's the boat people, it's you name it, and you've got the fisheries. Uh, there's no doubt about it. We, ha- we have to look after it, but the problem out west, uh, especially when we go away from just Lake Air, just go right across the inland Australia, are massive. I don't think the government can quite grasp that there is a whole generational change going on. Uh, there's going to be a lot of aggregation of country because the country will not produce what it used to produce. In my conversation with Anne Ballinger and she made it, I guess, a goal of hers, even though she just recently retired herself, that she just had a lot of love affair with the outback. And she was hoping to convince younger people to go out and do what she did. And that's certainly a struggle. And I guess the variability with climate change is going to make that much harder. I mean, what do you foresee as an industry, as a sort of a, a lifestyle for people living out there? Yep, it's pretty tough to get into. There is some young farmer loans and things, they've titled them. You need a fair bit of backing. It's going to cost you a couple of million dollars to get going. So you really need a rich benefactor or a helping hand from the bank, and you need a couple of decent seasons. If we'd have copped the seasons back when we started that we were getting when we finished, we would never have uh, survived. I was working off farm, and from 2000 through to 2016, 17, my wife and I were working on the roads uh, as contractors to the Barkey Shire Council, and that was our drought assistance. Um, I don't believe in handouts. Uh, we were running a business. If the business wasn't going to work, it was time to get out of it. So we went to work for the Shire. Uh, we probably on average, pulled in about $100,000 a year for five, the last five or six years, and that kept us afloat. We'd have been sunk without them. So if you can have another income stream, that's fine, but you have to get the income to develop the other income stream. That's, that's the real problem in it. You can't put all your eggs in one basket. We had four investment properties that we purchased over time, uh, which stood by us when things were crook. But... To get that, we did a lot of going without so that we could have something to finish with. If you could, I don't know if you feel like speculating, but in the United States, I don't know how closely you follow the agricultural sector in the U.S., but it's a relatively conservative sector, and there's a lot of skepticism on climate change in general, and you really don't talk about it. And I find with my experiences just with people in Australia that there's a bit more of an open mind, even with people who are out there working the land, to think about climate change that way. I mean – why do you think that there is that different perspective on on that issue, or do you think they're closer than than I'm sort of speculating? 
No, I think you might be right. I've only seen a few uh, Bob Morris type stuff about uh, climate change in America and the effects of, but here, all of a sudden, we've got safe country that's no longer safe. I mean, even across the Blackhall, uh, down to Roma and the Darling Downs, they're getting dry times now, which they might have experienced one in 10 or one in 20, and now they're getting them quite regularly. Uh, New South Wales is a disaster area at the moment. Uh, they're running out of water, surface water. So that's one thing that the Great Artesian Basin has supplied to most of Queensland, is at least they've got water. Uh, I, th I think that, that people in Queensland are actually a bit more in tune with what's going on around them, not necessarily just Queensland. In uh, New South Wales, Victoria, uh, perhaps the news services are better here. <laughs> Maybe we're being guided more. <laughs> I don't know. There are sceptics, there's no doubt about it, but I think they're, they're becoming a bit quieter. Okay, this is more of a, a casual question, but if, and I asked this of Anne, in Queensland, and you might have something that's closer to your home, but is there a favorite spot in Queensland that if there was a tourist coming from the United States or Europe that you would just recommend that's really special to you, and, and why is it special? Oh, favorite spot. Uh, that's tricky. Actually, my favorite spot was the jump up at home. It's a bit hard to describe. We were west of, so south, down roughly. You went through Red Mulga country, climbed up a top rock ridge, and out on a huge expanse of open grassland. All mountain country, never had all that. Uh, just mile after mile of Mitchell grass. It was green. It was absolutely magnificent. You really had to just stop on the top of the hill and have a look at it. And a camera just didn't give it justice. There, there wasn't not enough range. Like the grass went out for about 30, 38, 40 miles before it hit one patch of scrub. And then it turned south and went down to the Baduri Road uh, with a couple of creeks in it. And then it turned north and went about 40 k that way. So it was a huge expanse of grassland, very few trees. Out of that 73,000 acres we had, we had about 5,000 acres of trees, stunted gitchy. And uh, there's there, and you go down, a very accessible spot is the river at Mindora, the Cooper Creek. Uh, it's just magic. It's just, it's part and parcel of our country. It's just beautiful. I've worked in the Territory, uh, New South Wales and Victoria, and Queensland is the, is the, is the nicest place I've worked in yet. Okay, that was perfect, perfect. Final question, and this is more for my own sake, is why did you feel so comfortable calling me that bloody yank? <laughs> <laughs> I, I always have trouble with names. <laughs> uh, I, I always connect someone to something. Uh, we've got a guy who is one of the senior public servants in uh, the Secretariat for the Lake Air Basin Community Advisory Committee, and he's a fairly fit-looking chap. He does a bit of weightlifting and whatever by the look of him. And the first meeting I went to, he had his hair gelled back and he had golden blondie stripes in it. And I said to Angus Emmett, that bloke looks like one of those funny penguins. What's their name? And he looked it up and it was a macaroni penguin. And that's how I, I christened that bloke the macaroni penguin so I knew who he was. 
Well, if you see any of the old gang, say hi for me, and uh, I just will be in touch. But thank you so much, Peter. Well, okay, job's good. Damn yank, eh? <laughs> the bloody, bloody yank, bloody yank. <laughs> All right, take care. Cheers, mate. Okay, adapters, that is a wrap. I miss all those wonderful expressions. You almost need a translation book to understand some of the words they're saying. I love listening to Peter Douglas even when he's insulting me. It's such great stuff. Okay, so getting various sectors impacted by climate change to work together is not easy. And the NRM model should serve as a case study on how to engage with rural audiences. Heed their experiences and learn from them. Just an editorial note, this episode has been many months in the making, so in that time, Andrew Drysdale, my first guest, has moved on from NRM Queensland, but his interview was obviously relevant to what's happening now. Some final housekeeping, don't forget to join the Facebook book and the Facebook community group. The group is private, but search for America Daps and ask to join and I'll preview right away. It's a chance to hear insider info on the podcast and to see what other listeners are sharing on the wall. Some great conversations have come out of that group. And if you're already a member of those groups, don't forget to share all the posts that we have on there. On that note, I love hearing from you. I mean it. Just say hi. I've heard from quite a few of you in the last couple of weeks, and it's been delightful. If you have an idea for a guest, let me know. Seriously, it is a highlight of my week, and it really sometimes leads to some cool things. I'm working on a few things now, and it's just fantastic. I'm at americadaps at gmail.com. Send me an email. Okay, check out the website at americadaps.org. All this information is in my show notes especially the link to that donate page. Okay, adapters, keep up the great work. I'll see you next time.